Welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main Thermo Fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. So Prof Cormac Taylor, UCD Professor of Cellular Physiology, is my guest on the podcast today. So Cormac's research area focuses on understanding the impact of low oxygen levels or hypoxia and chronic inflammation. And among the many accolades I could list, and that list is exhaustive, Cormac is a UCD Conway Fellow, has been elected to the Royal Irish Academy. And in 2017, he was awarded the Takeda Distinguished Researcher Award. And this is the first time that this has been awarded to a scientist outside the US. And so with that in mind, I'm both honoured and excited to chat with you today, Cormac. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Megan. Very nice to talk to you. Great. Um, So I suppose I want to start in and talk to me a little bit about what you were like in school or, you know, when you were like 10 or 11, were you always interested in science or kind of what was what were the hobbies that Cormac Taylor had back then? Yeah, so I I was um, I was very much not interested in science when I was in school. I wasn't one of these kids who, who sort of dreamed about being a, a, a scientist in a white coat in later years and discovering all sorts of new things. I was actually far more interested in sport at that time. I was a, I actually played, I, I was a goalkeeper. I used to play football for Home Farm, which is one of the big schoolboy football teams in, in Dublin at the time. Um, and it was my aspiration at that time, I think probably to be more interested in a career maybe in, in, in sports or in football or, or, or something along those lines, or at least they, those were the dreams I had at that point so yeah in school I was uh, it's funny I didn't really study science very much I didn't ironically ever study biology uh, in, in school um, I did a little bit of physics I never did chemistry I was more sort of accountancy economics that's sort of uh, I'm not sure if I was intellectually engaged or just they were the subjects I thought I could do better in but um, but certainly in, in, in school I was more orientated towards the sort of sporting side of life I also had an amazing English teacher uh, his name is Joe Kennedy who one day uh, decided he was going to do after after school guitar classes and um, he taught me my first chords on the guitar and uh, he had a great taste in music and I remember the first song I learned was an Elvis Costello song that was kind of level that we were at not like you know no classical stuff or no sort of uh, uh, kumbaya it was really he was straight into the good alternative rock <laughs> so, so uh, th- th- those were my two driving passions in school actually music and uh, and sport more than more than science science came much later for me and like when you were picking your subjects for leaving cert to go on and do your college degree, when did science kind of win out? Because, you know, did you ever consider music then? Um, well, well, I absolutely considered music as I did sport. But at some point during the course of our lives, we have to be realistic about where uh, the outer limits of our talents lie. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it became, uh, although I did get to quite a high stage, I played for Dublin and I even got a, an underage uh, selection for the Irish team. We played against Northern Ireland once. I never actually got on the pitch. I was only the goalkeeper on the sideline. <laughs> and, you know, as you know, goalkeepers never get substituted unless there's a disaster. So, um, But, you know, uh, I realized that that wasn't probably going to be the, uh, the career that, that I would succeed in most I you know I, I think in selecting the leaving search subjects in those days we were far less 
concerned about um, career tracks, I think. We just, uh, I, I certainly wanted to go to university because it looked like a whole load of fun. Um, and I didn't want to commit myself to something because, and this is something I carry through to, to my age now. I just turned 50 recently and I'm always, when I talk to the medical students who have just started and I'm teaching them, I'm, I'm, I tell them I'm very wary of anybody who knows what they want to do for the rest of their life at the age of 17 or 18. Uh, that doesn't seem like a natural state to me. I, I remember very distinctly when I was choosing what I wanted to go for in college, um, I chose science because it was general. It didn't tie me down. It wasn't mean I was going to be an architect or a doctor or a, a, a physiotherapist or something like that. It seemed like a general enough degree that, that kept my options open. So that, that was that was my main driving force. And But I did know I wanted to go to college because it looked like a, a whole lot of fun. And this was in the 1980s and the 1990s where the economy in Ireland, you think we're in, we're in you think we know recession now, but there were real recessions back then. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're from Dublin, are you? So going to, I think you went to UCD. So was that wasn't a big move. I suppose because you, I'm assuming you stayed at home. Yeah, well, I actually lived in Temple Oak, uh, so my parents they still they still both live there. Um, my dad would would kill me if I didn't mention the fact that he was also a goalkeeper, um, which might have had something to do with this. And he actually has the uh, claim to fame of being the only goalkeeper. He played for the Irish national team, so he was a full Irish capped goalkeeper, and he never conceded a goal during his entire international career. He's wow. the only Irish goalkeeper who didn't concede a goal, which is a huge achievement uh, until you uh, until you figure out that he only played a half a match against Poland, which they were oh. winning <laughs> a number of goals by. So, you didn't have to say that no, last part. He'll, he'll double kill me now for saying that, but Tommy Taylor was his name. And to this day, as far as we can determine, he was the only Irish goalkeeper who kept a clean sheet for his entire international career. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's a shout out to him. So yeah, no, my parents both live in, in Temple Oak. I lived there when I was um, when I was in college, and when I when indeed when I when I went on to do my postgraduate as well, I stayed at home. And how did you find science then? Because it kind of alluded to it there, but you didn't do biology for leaving search, I'm assuming. And how was that then moving into general science and UCD? Yeah, I found I actually didn't find it very difficult. Um, um, I, I enjoy biology. I think I have a little bit of infinity for it. I, I think it's fascinating. I think that, you know, one of the things that opened my eyes up as soon as I started studying biology was the opportunity it gave you for really understanding the fundamentals of who we are, what we are, how we function. And, um, and I think that's sort of where my interest maybe was, was peaked. Um, at those early stages of, of studying biology when I got into, into college. I found chemistry more challenging, I remember at the time, not having studied chemistry uh, before. Uh, that, was, that was more on the sort of mathematical, chemical side of things was, was more difficult. But biology really piqued my interest. And the way it works in, in UCD is you sort of specialize as you go through the years. So you start off with just chemistry, biology, physics and, and maths, um, or at least it was, it was then, when you did a general science degree. But it was actually in third year where pharmacology came onto the agenda and I started to think about the interaction between drugs and the body and how that could be used therapeutically. That's when I really got interested because you started thinking about uh, the really interesting aspects of medicine uh, where, you know, we can interfere with biological processes and, and help in disease. So, so really it was when I was introduced to pharmacology and at the time uh, UCD had the, the uh, had an absolutely wonderful pharmacology department headed by Michael Ryan and people like Alan Keenan and Alan Baird and Cathy O'Boyle and um, a really Finian Martin and a great selection of 
of really top uh, pharmacology teachers were there. And I think that's when I suddenly thought, oh God, I think I found something I actually like doing. <laughs> so I did, I did pharmacology and I, I, um, I actually graduated uh, from pharmacology in UCD and did what nobody, uh, I always tell other people they shouldn't do. I ended up doing a PhD in exactly the same lab that I did my fourth year project in with Alan Baird. It was a magnet, fantastic experience. And Alan was an amazing mentor. Um, and really that's, that's when I really started to get very, very excited about the, the, the topic and, uh, and realized that this could be a career a career for me but i would i would stress that i was at the postgraduate level before i really sort of you know decided this is what i really suited me to do and why do you think then that just interesting that you say you know you should never do a phd with someone you did your fourth year with because i'm actually similar to you i did my fourth year with ursula fearing and um, my phd with her i actually thought it was great mm. because i knew what I was getting in myself in for, she knew me, we had three months of experience. So we kind of knew the commitment and it was going to work, you know, that kind of way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and of course, like the fact that you have, uh, you're, you're familiar with the place is a, um, uh, and I, I also did, did the same thing. So I can't, I can't give out about it at all. But uh, I think in science, one of the things that, that is clear is that different people do science different ways. And it's good to get experience in multiple different environments because, you know, um, there isn't one way to do science. And some ways may suit you better. I'm not saying one is better than another, but but it's good to get a, a flavor of multiple places. But but I guess it probably applies more to not doing a postdoc in the place you did your PhD and, and spreading a little bit. Maybe that's that's a better thing. But and I think that the other thing is that I got I really tweaked my, my fourth year project was about this ancient Chinese herbal remedy that was used to treat diarrhea for the last like 10,000 years in China and nobody knew how it actually worked and uh, Alan had come up with this project it's called berberine it's a substance that was derived from this plant um, so we we set out to find out well how is this plant working you know it, it actually turned out to be a fascinating project so my PhD continued on with that so I, I kind of got my teeth into a project and that's why I wanted to do it but there were great years and, and as I said the pharmacology department in, in UCD as anyone who's been there and, and many of the I would say that many of the leading scientists in Ireland would have would have gone through that department at the moment and it was a very, very successful training ground. And following from your PhD, I know you went over to Boston um, and you did your postdoc over in Harvard. So how did that come about and how how did you find, I suppose, the difference culturally and then I suppose work-wise between Boston and Ireland? Okay, well, well, first of all, to say how did that come about was my first band, uh, This Black Cactus, who we got to the enormous level of fame of supporting the stunning at the UCD rag ball in about, you know, 1822. Uh, <laughs> when stunning were still young men and we were even younger. But uh, yeah, so that band uh, sort of um, dissolved in, a, in a, 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 a vat of acrimony and rock and roll uh, sort of endings. So I decided another career was required. So... I decided on a postdoc to do a postdoc and uh, fortunately one of the speakers who had passed through the pharmacology department uh, was a man called Sean Colgan so he's a, like a third generation Irish scientist working in Boston and at the time he was really a postdoc himself at the end of his postdoc in uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital at, at Harvard Medical School um, I, I met him and I just said okay you know he was, he was a nice guy and, and at the same time about six months later when I was thinking about moving to the States for a postdoc because there were no postdocs in Ireland at that time the, the job just simply didn't exist um, and, and that's why I would say the PhD was a, was was more a vocation than a career decision because there was no obvious career track in Ireland you know you did a PhD and then you left that was kind of what happened there wasn't really an option at that in those days there was no science foundation Ireland there was no f uh, funding level uh, anywhere near what we see at the moment 
but I went to anyway I, I, to cut a long story short I, I was going to a conference in the US and I applied to a number of very prestigious successful scientists people who had you know potential Nobel Prize winning labs and in, in, in the biggest universities uh, because I always thought again, that, that surely that's the best place to go to do your postdoc right you learn from you know the Nobel Prize winners or the, or the, the, the world leaders and then Sean who was this very young academic really not even faculty just finishing his postdoc but got his first aura one grant they call it in the US I also had a position so I went over to this conference and I interviewed with all of these bigwigs as well as at the end I said well I better interview Sean as well uh, interview with Sean as well and um I walked out of those interviews and there was only one thing on my mind is I wanted to work for him. Really? Uh, I realized very quick that, and I would give this advice to anybody, don't think that going to the big massive lab with 30 postdocs in it who's going to win the Nobel Prize or has won the Nobel Prize is the place you're going to get the best postdoctoral training. You'll likely not even see the PI um, during that time. So, so um, I, I learned this by serendipity, but by, by virtually the fact that I just went for a couple of beers with Sean and I got on with him like a house on fire. And, you know, we're very, very deep friends now, many, many years later. Um, but I was actually his first postdoc in the lab. And during the time when I was in the lab, he went from being a postdoc and, and, and an early stage academic to being a full professor in Harvard. Wow. So um, I was on the coattails of somebody who was really, really did very well. But the, but the advice that I would give from that is always try to identify a younger rising star rather than somebody whose star might have already burnt mm. out and, and, and be on the wane when choosing a postdoc. And also, coincidentally, at that time, I, I was uh, living in, in, in Boston and I, um, I, I found a local bar called the Linwood Grill and there was an open mic night and my second incarnation Grass Cowboy uh, the second band picked up so not only was I was I sort of uh, uh, researching in Boston but I also had a, a musical career there so a second bite at the cherry as it was So like I think I just I really want to ask you about the music side of it because you know you've talked to me now about two different bands so how is it going before we came on on air you were show, you know you had your guitar there you how, yeah how is it going and how is the how is it being a, a scientific rock star I suppose Oh, and I, I love it. Well, actually, so so the, the second band was during the Boston years, and we did we did more we got more successful. So with Grass Cowboy, we actually released a CD, uh, which I can send on to you if you need some music to put in the background for the podcast. <laughs> you know, the at the opening or the ending, you can use some of that for sure. Uh, it's not patented or uh, copyrighted, but we did make a CD, and actually, we got to the stage where um, we did reverse shoplifting because we made, we made like 2000 copies of this CD and then we realized we had no way to get rid of them, to give them to people. So we used to, we used to go into record shops and plant our CDs in the, uh, <laughs> in the record shop at the hope that somebody would like pick it up and buy it out of random chance. But, so there are 2000 copies of Treason by Grass Cowboy floating out around the world somewhere. Um, so, um, so yeah, no, music has always been a big part of my life. It still is. I still play music. In fact, we have a, a third band now at the moment called GI Distress, which is a group of myself and a group of other physiologists who, uh, when we get together at conferences, we play lots of cover versions. We even have a couple of original songs as well now. So I haven't completely given up the ghost, but, um, but I've always found music to be an amazing bam for the soul. Um, I've been, as all of us have been locked down for the last gazillion months during the the, the pandemic and uh, having a guitar beside you where you can just pick it up and and play a song is is actually a wonderful thing to do i, I actually recently wrote a song which if you want at the end i can play it it's it's, oh, called, go on, yeah. <laughs> it's called 2020 blues and it's it's a i think it is probably the most universally accepted theme at the moment is that like 2020 has been a pretty tough year and it deserves a blues song written about it so i thought there's got to be a market for that 
Oh, definitely. Uh, when we come to the end, I'll definitely get you to. I'll, play, I'll, I'll use it as the exit, the exit song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'll be a first for the podcast. So that's great. Mm-hmm. And you're you're the singer of like all, for all the bands, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I'm 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 a little bit. Um, I think, and it comes into science and uh, teaching as well. I think I really like to perform both, you know, in in terms of teaching, in terms of music, in terms of presenting at scientific conferences. I, I and the band has been an amazing thing. I have to say, because I played in the band since I was in high school. High school. I'm getting so American. Secondary school. I, uh, <laughs> I, I never really had that sort of uh, fear of presenting work that I know paralyzes a lot of people who are in science. And um, if you can do something artistic in terms of performing in a band or acting or, or, or doing something that involves performance, it is such a beneficial thing when it comes to actually presenting work then at conferences, standing up and talking about your work, which, of course, is a vitally important part of the whole scientific process. Yeah, no, it's funny. I remember before my first presentation, I, I didn't understand. I didn't know how it happened, like how it worked. So I remember saying, like, will we be in the green room beforehand? And everyone's like, there's no green room. You're just in, you're just in the crowd and you just stand up. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, did, I was very I was very green to the green room, to be fair. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I suppose, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll touch back on the music at the end. But I suppose mm-hmm. it's a good point in our conversation to bring in your research and talk to me about um, oxygen, about hypoxia, about, you know, why we want to study these processes and how it's I suppose, linked to inflammatory uh, mechanisms as well. Yeah, no, I, I um, like all great things in life, there's a lot of luck involved in, the, in these processes. I did my PhD, as I said, with Alan Baird and, and, and really had a great experience and published a couple of nice papers in the area of intestinal biology and, and basically how the gut works. And then um, when I went to Boston, I, I actually went in and as I said, Sean Colgan, my, my mentor, my PI who I was working for, had just got a position in the Department of Anesthesiology, which is kind of a strange place for researchers to work. Um, to cut a long story short, the head of the department said, you've got to find something yourself to do, something new, something you can mark uh, as uh, your own field. And one of the things that's very important in anesthesiology is keeping the levels of oxygen high enough in a patient when they're undergoing surgery so that they don't you know, suffer the, the, the problems associated with oxygen deprivation or, or hypoxia. So we came in at it from a very kind of different angle in this sort of department of anesthesiology. Now, at the same time, um, a group of scientists were became interested in how the body adapts to low oxygen concentration. So you know that the um, you know that if you're going to mount, climb Mount Everest, you don't go straight to the top. Well, obviously, it takes a while to get there, but you go to, uh, to base camp to allow your body to adapt to a relative drop in oxygen concentration. And then that allows you to ascend to higher levels. Your body adapts as it, as it goes to, to lower concentrations of oxygen. Um, and one of the things, the way by which it adapts is that it starts to produce more red blood cells so you can carry more oxygen around the body, which is a, a phenomenon we've known for a long time, but nobody really fully understood how that works, how the low oxygen causes the red blood cell production to occur. So while we were working at it from a sort of anesthesiology point of view, there was a group of, of people, Greg Semenza, Bill Kalin, uh, Peter Ratliff, and a number of others, Frank Bunn in Harvard, who were interested in from this, this, this adaptation point of view. So there was a small enough group of researchers in the early 1990s, when I was uh, started working this field, mid-1990s, I guess, uh, working in this area, about 30 or 40. We used to go to these conferences, you know, which were sort of quite low-key and not too many people at them. 
But what developed was our, a further understanding that these mechanisms that regulate how a cell responds when oxygen levels are low are not just important in altitude, they're actually important in a whole load of disease processes like stroke, like um, anemia, like uh, uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attack. So how the body maintains oxygen levels is actually of of key importance not just to health but also also to disease so as, as this process developed it actually became very clear that this was a really important question it wasn't just a, a sort of a biologically interesting question about altitude acclimatization it actually had really broad uh, implications so the, it was very exciting to be part of this because the field just developed and developed and developed over the years i did my postdoc and when i started my lab in dublin in 2000 it was really exploding this field um, and and uh, I don't know, as you might know, those those three investigators who, who worked, who kind of led the field in the early days, they received the Nobel Prize last year in, in medicine uh, for, for, for identifying this hypoxia sensitive pathway in cells. So it was really, really exciting and very, very lucky to end up working in a field which, you know, I was there at the, the sort of the beginning of it and I saw its evolution all the way up to these guys getting the Nobel Prize. So it was a very, very exciting area to work in. Um, our sort of branch was um, how oxygen deprivation affects inflammatory processes, because when, we, when a process gets, when a tissue becomes inflamed in diseases like inflammatory bowel disease or, or hepatitis or, or rheumatoid arthritis, as, as Ursula has investigated, uh, the oxygen levels drop and that impacts upon the way that inflammatory process develops. And it uh, turns out that interfering with the hypoxia dependent pathways uh, might actually be of therapeutic benefit. So, uh, yeah, no, it's been a very exciting area. We, we, we have a sort of a branch uh, in, uh, often in, in, in how hypoxia affects inflammation and immunity, but it's been very exciting. I don't know if it, maybe it's peaked now, you know, once the Nobel Prize is won in an area, maybe it's time to jump ship and do something else. <laughs> No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, it, you know, I suppose that with the Nobel Prize, I suppose it only highlights how important these studies are. And, you know, talk to me a bit about inflammatory bowel disease and then maybe kind of what investigations in your lab um, are doing to manipulate this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um so in the area of hypoxia, one of the things that was developed was an area of pharmacological intervention. So in fact, we can activate, we can trick a cell tissue or indeed a whole organism or a human into thinking into the body, if essentially thinking it's hypoxic when it's not by activating this pathway pharmacologically, rather than putting somebody at low oxygen, you can give them a drug that activates this pathway and, and, and mimics hypoxia, if you like. Um, so inflammatory bowel disease, well, it consists of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. It's a common debilitating inflammatory condition of the gut. Uh, the symptoms can range from mild discomfort all the way up to uh, the requirement for a surgical removal of the intestine or large parts of the intestine, should I say, uh, due to inflammation that's just uncontrollable. Uh, and really what happens is that in people with inflammatory bowel disease, the barrier that separates the fecal matter and the bacteria present in the gut uh, becomes leaky, so those bugs start to make their way into the body and it causes inflammation that sort of becomes a, a circular, if you like. So the inflammation causes more damage to the barrier and you get a worse and worse inflammatory state. Um, so our main discovery or one of our main discoveries in this area was that if we activate the hypoxic response in the gut, if we trick the gut into thinking it's been 
deprived of oxygen when it isn't. We essentially take the gut, the gut pharmacologically, we use a drug to take the gut to the top of Mount Everest, uh, and it activates that adaptive response that helps it deal with the drop in oxygen concentration, which it turns out is protective, at least in animal models of inflammatory bowel disease. And um, this has currently been investigated at a clinical level to see if, this, if, the, if it similarly works in patients with, with IBD. So uh, IBD is a, is, a, is a poorly treated condition. There is still big need, there's a, still a big clinical need for new drugs. And our, our angle has been that if we activate the hypoxic pathways, this could be, this could be a new therapeutic uh, weapon in the arm, armory against IBD. So is it kind of like you're trying to prepare the cells in a way by triggering these hypoxia signaling events um, yeah. to dampen, dampen the inflammation? Yeah, yeah. So, so as I've said, inflammation causes the tissue to become oxygen deprived, which causes damage to the tissue. So if we can activate these adaptive pathways that help us to deal with that hypoxia, then it will be of therapeutic benefit uh, to the patient. Hopefully that's the, that's the plan. We'll know in a couple of years. And talk to me, you know, what about other, I suppose, gases in the body? What about CO2? Because I know you're interested in that as well. And I remember, because I had you for lectures in uh, UCD when I was doing biomed, and I remember you talking in a lecture one day that now maybe I've got this wrong this is a few years ago but that you one night you just thought what happens to the CO2 when you were like why am I looking at oxygen well we need to look at CO2 as well I don't know if I'm right in that story this is yeah a- no I don't know you're no you're absolutely right it, it's um it's something that shocks me to this day is that carbon dioxide which all of our cells produce when they respire how it affects the body. You know, we know, for example, if you, you know, if you take, you get in, find yourself in a room with too much carbon dioxide, it's bad news. You're, you're not going to survive very long. Um, if you have, uh, you'll get what's called hypercapnia, your blood will become acidic and you'll, you'll eventually die. Um, if you have not enough carbon dioxide in your body, it will also cause all sorts of pathological problems. But what's really remarkable to me, and, and this sort of came while I was looking at oxygen and, um, and you know, for every molecule of oxygen you consume, you're going to produce carbon dioxide. And what's remarkable is we really don't know how our body registers how much carbon dioxide is, is present in it. Um, we don't know how cells respond to changes in carbon dioxide. And uh, this is remarkably to me a really, a really f- fascinating and new area of research. So while we know now a lot about oxygen, we still know very little about carbon. I'm probably giving away my, my, my future scientific grants, but I, <laughs> I really think that we need to understand this gas more, much, much more. It's funny, you know, because I moved from O2 to CO2 and telling a friend of mine that I'm changing my whole area of research. And he's like, yeah, by one carbon atom, you're changing your entire area of research by one carbon but I have to explain that they're different fish. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but that would be my, my scientific bet for the future. Watch carbon dioxide sensing in cells, tissues. Owen Cummins, who works in the Conway Institute, who was a postdoc in my lab uh, years ago and has his own group now, is, is an expert in this area too. And he's, he's uh, got some very exciting data around that. So watch this space, essentially. Watch this space. Carbon dioxide. It's coming to a town near you soon. <laughs> You've heard it first on the unraveling science. <laughs> well, i got to do something else. Now that oxygen has got its Nobel Prize, I need to move on to something else. And talk to me a bit about, you know, how you run these experiments in the lab. And uh, do you work on mouse models or is it ex vivo tissue models? Yeah, I'm not. So, so, you know, as a pharmacologist, you know, my main interest ultimately is in developing new therapeutic approaches to human disease. Um, I also, at the same time, am very aware of the 
importance of the restricted, if you like, responsible use of animals in terms of, of, of research. So any animal related studies that we have done in our lab have always been directed toward at the at the end stage of a therapeutic approach. So we, we want to see does a does a, a therapeutic agent work in a, in a model of disease that, that would be where we would, would carry out those those types of studies. Um, the vast majority of the work that we do is on cells and culture because we want to work at the cellular level to understand where um, uh, oxygen sensing or where carbon dioxide sensing occurs at the cellular level. So we really want to understand the biochemistry of it. So the most useful models for us to do that are um, uh, primary non-tumor cells in culture to, uh, to, to investigate that. I think you're associated with Systems Biology Ireland as well. So what, what is Systems Biology? God, as a- <laughs> no. I was like, I was in an institute for, for five years and people were still saying, you know, every time we went to write a grant, well, what is Systems Biology? It's like, we, we do it. Uh, the answer to it is, is I think that um, Systems Biology is, it, I mean, it is a, it's a philosophy in some ways and an application of uh, computer science and mathematical modeling to biological questions. So I think that in order to understand the complexity of something like a a biological system, like a cell even in in isolation, we don't have the mental capacity to do that by just thinking about it and and trying to visualize it uh, in our our own heads because it's so complex. and, and if I could give you an example, maybe that's the best way of, of, of applying systems biology to, to a problem. If you think about any pathway, right, there are multiple, multiple components in any pathway. Say it's a, a drug binding to a receptor that activates a signaling pathway downstream of that receptor. Um, so you can do two things. You can draw a scheme, a schematic, and then uh, make a model around that and, and say, OK, I predict based on my model, my mathematical model of this pathway, that this is, this is what will happen when we actually do a biological experiment. And usually the model is wrong, okay? Uh, so, so the quote I heard from Walter Kalsch, who's the head of the, the, um, the institute, and I think he might have been quoting somebody else, he says, all models are wrong, but some of them are, in, are useful, <laughs> which is kind of a depressing way to start. What I kind of used the systems biology approach to, to do was to identify the questions that are, are needed. So if you, if you think about the simplest uh, um, interaction between two molecules, say a, a receptor binding to the a drug binding to a receptor, then if you do a mathematical model of that, because there's only two components, chances are that you can use the mathematical model to accurately predict what the biology will do. Okay, so, so then you know, okay, my biology is, is correct here. So then you try to expand that to look at the drug interacting with the receptor and the downstream signal that, that is, is activated by that, then your mod- model becomes more complex. And if the model accurately predicts what biological uh, experiments does, then, okay, you, you know, okay, my biological understanding here is good. So say you move a step further, you make the model a bit more complex and you say, I'm going to look at the gene expression in response to that. So you've now got the receptor, the drug, the downstream pathway and the, the genetic response. Now say your model doesn't work anymore even though you've put all of the things that you think are important biologically into the model, but the mathematical model doesn't predict the biological outcome, well, then the model tells you now you're missing so You're missing something between these two steps. When the model was working, you were right. You had all of the right components, but now something's missing because mm-hmm. the model has broken down. It's stopped working. So it doesn't tell you the answer. It tells you the question. It tells you where the missing piece is. And then you can go and look for the missing piece. 
that's my version of systems biology. I'm sure Boris Kolodenko, Walter Kolch, and many other great systems biologists would, would give you other definitions. I'm just interested because I suppose I I think it's such an up and coming area and I think nearly everybody, you know, stuff like bioinformatics and um, mathematical kind of modeling and, you know, machine learning, these are all things that are, I suppose, we all need to know. And I think it's, yeah. uh, it seems to be the way forward. Yeah, no, I, no, it is. It's, it's a hugely important application to help us develop our understandings of biological processes, but it's not a replacement for biochemistry and biology and pharmacology and understanding single components in great detail, because it tends to be big picture. It tends mm-hmm. to be high throughput. And when you go high throughput, you lose focus, you lose detail. So I think you need to have a balance between the two. And, and really one of the things we've done in Systems Biology Ireland is, is to have mathematical modelers and biological scientists in the same place at the same time talking to each other. And very, very rarely we actually get one person who can do both. But generally it's by grouping dry and wet scientists in the same building. Yeah. And to kind of, I suppose, promote that collaboration and multidisciplinary approach. Um, talk to me about teaching and lecturing and how you find that. And do you find that that takes time away from you as a researcher or do you think it, it enriches that role? You know, it's funny. If you'd asked me that question 20 years ago, I'd say, look, I just want to focus on research. I don't have time to do teaching. It's like all of the all of, all of the, um, the time consumption associated with it. And I need to focus on, on the research. I would completely invert that question now. As I've become older, um, uh, I've definitely developed a greater depth of interest in teaching. I, I had the privilege because the Irish system Uh, The Irish funding system was funding the type of science that I think is important Um, for many years. It was doing this um, and I was the beneficiary of that. I had three back to back SFI principal investigator awards that allowed me to run a large research group. And, you know, we produced a lot of of high quality research out of that. uh, And teaching was not at the forefront of my interest then for a number of reasons, uh, not least of which was the economic crash uh, in, in 2011, 2012 and the redirection if you like, of Irish science towards more commercially driven outputs. And and the impact of science was not the importance of of science for for science sake and for generating new knowledge without knowing what the application of that knowledge might be, really changed the essence of the funding of Irish science uh, in a way that I I personally didn't really suit the type of science I did. And I don't think uh, represents the type of science that internationally is is, is really um, prioritized. But, you know, this is, I guess, a governmental decision. But (laughs) luckily for me, during that period of time, while I still like really, I'm very happy to have a research group. Uh, I've actually recently started to do more teaching and to enjoy teaching more. I really love interacting with the students. I love the vibrancy. I utterly hate and detest the last month or when I said last six months, uh, eight months, where we've had to suddenly start teaching through a computer. And mm-hmm. as I said to you earlier, you know, I, I get up now and I shout at a computer for three hours in the morning and then go for a coffee and think this is not normal human behavior. You know? <laughs> but I love, love, love the uh, the actual interaction with students in the class, the discussion, the, the lecturing. So, uh, I, I mean, I think one of the greatest privileges, well, two of the greatest privileges you can have, one of our society through their tax, giving us money to do science in order to be able to investigate uh, and test our own hypotheses. I think that was an, a magnificent privilege to have. But another equally great privilege is people willing to uh, give their attention to you in order to educate them. Um, and actually, I, I see this as the future of, certainly for my career, the later stage of the career is more of an emphasis on teaching. But I think 
if I can say it without, without sort of boasting about it, I think I am quite a good teacher, but a lot of the reasons for that is because I've done research for so long and I, I understand that, that knowledge is, is a uh, evolving thing and uh, teaching like that is great fun because each year your, your lectures evolve as, as new knowledge and knowledge appears. So I think research has a very important role in informing teaching. So yeah. short answer is I love it, love it. And, you know, following on from that, what drives your passion to be an academic scientist? Like why, what do you love about it? That's like, that's an hour long answer to that question, <laughs> which I'm not going to give you because uh, uh, you, you don't have an hour to give me. But if I could put the points up, up front, um, honestly, it's, it's curiosity. That's what drives me. I'm curious about, I, I'm fascinated by the, by the body and how the body works. I'm fascinated by why when I run around in the gym, I start breathing heavier and breathing deeper because my body needs more ATP and it has, how does it do that? How does it know that? How does it, I think that these questions are fascinating, but they're curiosity driven. I'm not doing it because I think I'm going to be able to, uh, you know, set up a company and make a a 10 million euros from it. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated because of curiosity drives me to it. A second reason is I'm passionate about mentorship and, you know, sharing that enthusiasm but giving education to PhD students, postdocs, uh, undergraduate students who, as again, like I say, I have the, I have the privilege of, of, of being in a position to teach. Um, there is nothing more gratifying than seeing, uh, you know, one of your students succeed in their own way. And, and some of, a lot, none of my PhD students are now in faculty positions of their own. And it's, that's a wonderful thing to do. And, and it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I might sound I'm being totally altruistic about this, but you get a great buzz from seeing people who, who you train do well. So um, I'm very passionate about that. Um, in, in a fantasy way, the third reason is that, I, you know, I, I think we all should do research for the benefit of, of society and of, of, of man. And I think working in medical research, the opportunity to develop new drugs, new approaches is, is again, it's a, it's a great privilege to have that position. And ultimately, you know, what gets me up in the morning as well is the thought that the research we do might one day be able to, to treat somebody's disease. You know, it's a long process, though. I, I thought it was funny, like suddenly everybody does is doing COVID research now all of a sudden. Now, but, you know, typically we had an idea in 2005, which resulted in a paper in 2008, which took reproduction by, you know, 30, 40, 50 other research labs to become a viable scientific hypothesis, which was then tested by a company. And, you know, it's a long, arduous process from having an idea to that idea being applied. So if we're lucky enough that, the, that, this, that this happens, that's great. But it's not necessary. The necessary parts for me are satisfying the curiosity and, uh, and the opportunity to be a mentor to, to, to younger scientists. And something I ask people who come on is, what do you find frustrating about academia? But I read an article that you did about intellectual burnout and... I suppose I, I, I kind of want to touch on that. And, and you also spoke kind of about the benefits of maybe going sabbatical and getting away a little bit. Um, so, yeah, talk, talk to you about that. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's absolutely. And I, I was on a sabbatical. Um, let me tell you a little, a little sabbatical story. I did a sabbatical about four years ago in the University of Nice, um, which was fantastic. Uh, Jacques Poussigo, an amazing French scientist, hosted me in his lab. But about a month before I was supposed to be going to Nice, um, which is no, you know, not a bad place to do a sabbatical in fairness. Yeah. Um, he said, uh, he called me and he said, I have a little problem. He said, the, uh, the lab has, has to be renovated and we, we've had to move lab. Are you still willing to come? I said, yeah, well, where, where's the lab? 
And he said, oh, we had to go to the, uh, the Center for Marine Biology in Monaco. <laughs> so I spent my six months and my commute was, uh, was down the, the, the Côte d'Azur on the train to, uh, wow. to the Institute of Monaco. And so it was a fantastic place to go. But yeah, I, I needed it then. I was, I was burnt out because it does take a lot. If you're going to be a serious scientist, you know, it's not an eight hour a day job. It's, it's in your head all the time. You wake up with it, you go to bed with it. You think about it when you're out with your friends, you know, you, you, it's sort of there all the time. Uh, and I think sometimes you do need to have some perspective to step away from it. But what's burnt me out a lot, I've, I've been very frustrated with the Irish uh, governmental approach to science over the last five to 10 years. I think that they have lost the, the, the emphasis on uh, science being a business of discovering new knowledge. And it's that discovery of new knowledge and that dissemination of that knowledge to the world that's the important aspect, at least of academic science. You know, I'm sure it's different if you're doing science in a company. Um, and, and there's been a much greater emphasis on applied science and product development and economic science. And uh, a little bit, I think the universities have lost, have lost out on this because they should be sites of academic science and not necessarily uh, startup companies and, and, um, and, and commercial enterprises. There's room for that for sure, but I, I feel that the governmental approach to funding science has very much moved into that space at the cost of true basic academic science, blue skies research, as we would call it. And, um, and I, think that's to the, I think that's to the detriment of Irish science. And I found that very frustrating uh, and difficult to, uh, to deal with. Uh, because, you know, what ends up happening is you, you have to completely change the way you apply for money and uh, the rules of the, of the game have changed significantly, uh, as I said, not, not in my opinion, in a, in a good direction. Also, you know, after training 20 PhD students to completion, that's like 80 years of PhD supervision. Um, <laughs> you know, and as you know, PhDs are tough things to get through. And, uh, you know, if you have a lab with five people in it, somebody has a problem all the time. And <laughs> one of them has a problem all the time, which means you as the PI have a problem all the time. So, so I was very happy to reach 20. Um, and I've got number 21 in, in, in the lab at the moment. I'm number 22. But, uh, but I, I also needed a break from that because I, I found that to be, if you, if you take mentorship and, and supervision seriously, then it is a, it's a very draining process. Um, and you just need to recharge your, your batteries sometime and, and, and a sabbatical is a wonderful way to do that by just changing your focus for a few months. And did it, it work going to... Oh, fantastic, to... yeah. yeah. It, it did, it absolutely worked. And, and, and uh, I came back, I think, intellectually invigorated and uh, with a different perspective as well, though. I think, I think during my sabbatical was the time when I really started to refocus on teaching a bit more and realized that, you know, research is to some degree in a, a bit of a, at the end of the day, an egotistical process. It's your name, your research group, your title that, that gets the praise at the end. And that's great because I think you, you do generate knowledge and, and credit is, is well-deserved, but there comes a time where maybe you have to look at your outputs has been more than about what you've done, but to, to be able to educate uh, others uh, around that. And I think that, you know, the future generations of scientists at some point have to get the benefit of the investment made by by society in, in the current generation. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, having done this podcast series so far, how varied academic researchers' lives can be in that you can be fully focused on research or you can have a bit of both, you know, teaching research or you can have admin thrown in there or, you know, different things like that. So I, I just think it's, it's a, you know, especially talking to you where you're saying that you kind of refocus towards teaching in the later years. I think it's lovely for younger researchers maybe to know that 
you can kind of switch and merge different roles throughout your academic career if you're lucky if you get the funding if you get the positions but yeah. it's not just a static you are a researcher and you will do research for the rest of your life you know i have absolutely not and and, and to this day Megan, when I go into, I get up in the morning, I don't know what I'm going to be doing for the day. To this day, I go into the lab and I, I look at my emails, which informs some part of what I'm going to do for the day. I talk to people in the lab and either I just have to say, well, keep it up, you're doing great, or else I find that half the day will be taken up being a, what's the word, not chaplain. Uh, uh, <laughs> not chaplain. A therapist or something. <laughs> not a therapist, uh, this word. Um, yeah, yeah, it sounds like chaplain, but it's not that. But, you know, like basically um, counselling somebody yeah. through uh, the misery of, you know, their, their three-week experiment having gone flat in its face. So, uh, and then other days I'm, you know, flying, well, I used to be flying somewhere to give a talk at a, at a conference somewhere. Other days I'd be uh, uh, teaching classes in the university. It's a very, very, very job. And the truth is that in the early stages of a research career, you really have to focus on it because promotion in the academic system requires you to bring in grants and publish papers. But once you've become uh, promoted, if you like, to a professorial position, then I think you have a bit more flexibility in, in terms of uh, redirecting it. So it's, it's certainly not a static, sim, an unchanging job, not on a yearly basis, not even on a daily basis. That's what I love about it. Yeah, but Cormac, one of my last questions for you and before you kind of sing us out, which I'm excited about, uh, is if you weren't a scientist, uh, what do you think you would be? I mean, you've, you could have been a goalkeeper. You could be on a world tour right now. So yeah. do, do you think they would be the careers or do you think you'd be out of, ended up with something else? I would think that football... I was I was reasonable, but I wasn't at the level. And and I also discovered that uh, I quite like socializing and going out and things like that. And I don't think a sports life would have been um, consistent <laughs> with my enjoyment of the social side of life. It's much more in tune with the musician's lifestyle. So um, I would say that uh, the ideal alternative career for me would be a um, would be in, in in the musical side of things. I would love to be a successful singer-songwriter playing mid-sized venues touring around the world and and you know having a blast but i'm having a blast with science as well and i haven't given up on it either as you'll see in a moment <laughs> all right well do you want to sing your what is it 2020 blues okay yeah i have, I have to just make sure this is tuned first because yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I honestly was not expecting to do this so um, <laughs> me neither so yeah no i know so before cormac sings us out I just want to take this opportunity to thank all of the researchers and scientists I've had on this season. This episode actually is the last episode of season two. And really, we've covered so much from neuroscience to oncology, food science to bats and addiction and so much more in between. And it's been a real privilege to listen and learn here every week. I also want to thank my wonderful sponsor, Biosciences, for all of their support this season and for backing me in the podcast. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listeners. I have been so overwhelmed with the response to Unraveling Science these past few months. And without you all, we wouldn't have charted in the top 10 Apple Science podcast charts numerous times this year, which blew my mind. I'll be back in the new year for some more Unraveling Science stories. But for now, what better way to end the season and indeed the year? Here is Prof Cormac Taylor with 2020 Blues. talk about a year so dark it would take the shine off your shoes it would suck the lifeblood from your bones and it would sure give you the blues i'm talking 2020 
it's the year that we all wanna forget and the worst thing is it ain't over yet 2020 Wanna talk about a year so bad it would make your toenails curl? Brexit, COVID, Putin and Trump in a dance that chilled the world. I'm talking 2020. want 2020 vision anymore it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman if you're gay by trans or straight 2020 has united us all in the year we love to hate. I'm talking 2020. You hate 2022 and it's really. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that was brilliant! It was totally like, oh, it was spontaneous. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.